Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to gather together this evening as a body of believers, both here locally as well as those who are live streaming, to fellowship together around your word, that it is your word that reveals to us your thinking. It exposes to us your plan, your purposes. So we come to understand you, we come to understand who we are. For as those creatures created specifically in your image and likeness, the more we can understand you, the more we can understand who we are. Though we are but a finite representation and though we are corrupted by sin, nevertheless, the value of every human being is based upon this imageness that we are all created uh, to glorify you. And that is the chief purpose of the human race. But only through Jesus Christ and through a walk by the Spirit are we able to fulfill that purpose today. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us as we study through the Word today, that God the Holy Spirit would help us and challenge us and teach us as we go through your Word and that we might realize that that we have a great testimony not only to one another but also to uh, the body of Christ at large as well as to the angels. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Romans chapter 15. We missed last Thursday night. But we're back tonight continuing in Romans 15. This is the last section in Romans chapter 15, and we're looking at, uh, that should be Romans 15.7 to Romans 15.13. Let me correct that while I'm here. That's fast typing that was too fast. Romans 15.7 to 15.13. This ends uh, and concludes the section that we began uh, two or three weeks ago on the weaker brother in Revelation chapter, I mean Romans chapter 14. Was I saying Revelation earlier? Got my R things, words mixed up. In Romans 14, uh, 1, Paul started with the weaker brother. This also concludes the section of Romans that began with Romans 12, 1 and 2. So it might behoove us a little bit to just go back and look at the introduction. This closes out this section. When we get to Romans um, 15, 14, we'll be starting the conclusion to the epistle. Much as Romans 1, 1 through 17 is the introduction, Romans 1, 18 to Romans 15, 13 is the main body of the epistle. Now we come to a conclusion here. The concluding section uh, began in verse 1 of chapter 12, where Paul challenges them. This is an exhortation. An exhortation is a personal challenge to obedience in, in a number of areas. And he begins by saying, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And I t- noted at the time that that phrase meant that your whole life is to be a sacrifice to the purpose and the plan of God for your life. This is um, something that is that we all grow into as we mature as believers, and that it's supposed to be a living sacrifice wholly acceptable to God, which is our reasonable or rational service. What this means is that we're not to be conformed to the world, verse 2, but transformed by the renewing of our mind, mind first, then action, mind before emotion, mind before action. We don't just change what we do. We need to change what, what the way we think. 
the dis, one distinction between Christianity and all other world religions is that Christianity focus on, focuses on an internal change first, and the New Testament and the church age believers it focuses on an internal change that is empowered by God the Holy Spirit. Something that's never before happened in history that every single believer has God the Holy Spirit indwelling them and filling them so that they can walk by the Spirit throughout their, their life. And it is God the Holy Spirit who is the uh, energizing empowerment for the church age b- believer. And this comes through as he renovates our thinking, overhauls our thinking according to the word of God for a purpose that we may prove something, that our lives may demonstrate something like an experiment. You go into the chemistry laboratory and you perform an experiment, and that is uh, one purpose of that is to demonstrate a known truth. And so we are to demonstrate in our lives the reality and the value of living according to the will of God. So that is our purpose, to prove that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now, as we come to the end of this section, or as we looked through the section, rather, there's an emphasis on this whole aspect of the life of the believer within the body of Christ and how we are to serve one another And this comes under the primary command of loving one another. And that is repeated several times in chapter 12. And then it's applied in chapter 13 in relation to government. And then it is applied again in chapter 14 in terms of dealing with the weaker brother. And so chapter 14 began with the, with the command to receive one who is weak. The weaker brother are actually, it's the immature brother who is weak in the faith, and we're not to get involved in disputes over debatable or uh, insignificant or unimportant issues. That is, things that are not directly addressed in Scripture. We may think, we may come to certain convictions on our own that some behavior or some activities are not do not conform to uh, the will of God. That's our opinion because it's not specifically stated in the Word of God. And so the issue here was that that there are those believers who are imposing their conclusions on other believers. And so the command that Paul gave there was that for the more mature believer, they were to accept into fellowship those who were immature or weak in the faith, and they might hold to other beliefs, other convictions that were not important, that were uh, not, not part of revelation. And so uh, they were to accept them and have this unity. Now, in the conclusion of this section, Paul goes back to that same idea. In verse 7, he says, Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now, I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. And again Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles 
In him the Gentiles shall hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. See, this ends with this benediction in verse 13, focusing on the fact that we cannot do this on our own. The church age is not based on a principle of simple morality. Anyone can be moral. There are many pagan religions that emphasize morality. There are Christian cults that emphasize morality. There are religions like Islam that have a law that uh, purportedly emphasizes uh, morality. Judaism emphasizes the law of Moses as a standard of morality. But that's not spirituality according to the New Testament. Spirituality is based on our walk by God, the Holy Spirit, and spirituality is based on grace and not based on on works. So we start this final section, verse 7. Paul starts off with a conclusion. He says, therefore, uh, using a particle, it's not one you might expect. It's a different one called Dio, but it indicates the same thing. He's drawing a conclusion from that which has gone before, and he says, therefore, receive one another. Now, he uses the word receive here twice. He says, we are to receive one another first, and the pattern for that, the basis for that, is Jesus Christ. He says, just as or in the same way as Christ also received us to the glory of God. So we are to receive one another the same way Christ received us. Now, when we look at this word, it takes us right back to Romans 14.1. Paul said, receive one who is weak in the faith. Same word, same command. In chapter 14, 1, down through 15, 6, the focus was on the mature believer accepting, receiving into fellowship the immature believer. Now Paul expands that. He steps it up a notch, and he says we are all to receive one another. And in context, he's not just talking about you and I. He's not just talking about the mature believer and the younger believer. When he develops this, starting in verse 8 and 9, he's talking about Jew and Gentile. Again, this reinforces the idea that the issue at stake in Romans 14, uh, the weaker brother was referring to those who are from a Jewish background who were still following the Mosaic law, not necessarily as a way of spirituality, because if it was a way of spirituality, Paul would say they were wrong. That's what he did in Galatians. He said they were wrong. The Mosaic law is not a way of of, uh, spirituality. It's not a way of salvation. He made that exceptionally clear in some very strong language in Galatians. But here he's talking about the weaker brother is the person who who is worried about eating food that is clean. He's concerned about observing certain days. If his motivation was that that made them more spiritual, Paul would have said they're wrong. They're, they're following those because they think it is still significant and important because this was what was drilled into them as, as, as in their background as children. This is their their comfort zone within their uh, orthodox Jewish background. And so they still believe it's important to observe the dietary laws, but not for spiritual reasons. 
for other reasons. If they were spiritual reasons, like I've been saying, Paul would have come down on them hard. So they're, they're still thinking that this is right for other reasons, but then they're trying to impose that on others. So Paul moves from this, this, this problem that is apparently occurring between Jews and Jewish and Gentile Christians in the Roman church. And he's coming to this conclusion that they are to receive one another. And so we could um, paraphrase this as, therefore, receive one another into Christian fellowship. That verb proslambano has that idea of accepting someone into fellowship, into your social environment, making them part of uh, the others who come to church with you, being very accepting of one another. So we are to accept them just as Christ also received us into permanent fellowship. Fellowship is used a couple of times in the New Testament in terms of our permanent union with Christ. That is a permanent fellowship. Most of the time we use the word fellowship in terms of relative fellowship, describing our rapport with God. But the word is actually used both ways in, in the Scripture, but primarily in First John it is used of that ongoing rapport where John talks about the fact that, that we are to have fellowship uh, with one another for our fellowship with, with, is with God. So there's both a horizontal fellowship with one another and a vertical fellowship with God, but that vertical fellowship with God is the basis for our horizontal fellowship with one another. It's interesting that in John, uh, the, the, the primary basis for breaking fellowship in First John isn't that you've committed a personal sin. Most of us think that's the primary way that we break fellowship with God. We commit some personal sin. I love it when I can say something and watch some of you who've been around for a long time, just your face just sort of screws up like, what in the world is he talking about? In First John, John is more concerned about doctrine, and if you hold a wrong doctrine, you're out of fellowship. His primary thing is a relationship. That you, you, Americans emphasize relationship over other things more than other cultures have. That's just your cultural background showing through. Uh, but in in First John, John is really concerned first and foremost. It's not that he excludes the other. That's clearly there. But first and foremost, he's concerned about right doctrine. Wrong doctrine means you're out of fellowship. We rarely hear that emphasized. But if you have a a uh, heretical view of the person and work of Jesus Christ, if you have a heretical view of God, if you have a heretical view of what Christ did on the cross in terms of substitutionary atonement, then you are out of fellowship. And as long as you maintain that, you continue to have broken fellowship with God because right fellowship is based on right doctrine. It's also based on walking by the Spirit. But if we're holding to wrong doctrine, consciously believing heretical doctrine, then that excludes us from fellowship as well. I just thought I would remind you of those uh, particular points. So Paul says we're to receive one another in Christian fellowship just as Christ also received us into permanent fellowship. Now, Christ accepting us into permanent fellowship based on our faith in Christ, that's what that's based on. We trust in Christ as our Savior, and at the instant we trust in him, God imputes to us perfect, his perfect righteousness. 
when we have his perfect righteousness, then God looks at us not on the basis of who we are or what we've done. He's not looking at all the petty little sins that we've committed. He looks at the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that perfect righteousness of Christ covers all the nasty little sins in our lives and the fact that we're born spiritually dead. And God the Father declares us to be just, declares us to be righteous, not because of anything we've done, but because we possess the righteousness of Christ. And at that instant, we're accepted into the permanent fellowship uh, with the Trinity, with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, let's ask a question here. When, when this happens, upon whose character is this based? When we are accepted, when Christ receives us into permanent fellowship, upon whose character is that based? That's based on the character of God, isn't it? It's not based on anything related to the, uh, related to us. It's based on Christ's fellowship and the character of God. Therefore, when Paul makes this comparison and says we're to accept one another into fellowship in the body of Christ, that's, ba- that's not based on the character of the people that we're accepting into fellowship. That's not based on what they've done. It's not based on what they haven't done. It's not based on their failures in life. It's based on the fact that we need to accept them because they're already accepted by God. And if God says they're righteous and they're accepted, then who are we to say, well, you have to clean up a bunch of stuff before I can accept you? Any more than somebody else can look at our lives and say, well, you know, you've got all these failures and I'm not going to accept you. Now, that I think there's a difference between accepting someone into Christian fellowship and accept, accepting someone as your BFF, your best friend forever. Just thought I would throw that out in case you weren't paying attention. Because somebody who's a good, who, who you want to accept as your friend has to meet other criteria as well. This is a person uh, who is uh, more intimate with you than somebody else. All of us have circles of intimacy. We have those people that we spend a lot of time with and we get to know well, and we are much freer with them. We share things, uh, private things with them that we may not share with other people. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of dis- discrimination in the good sense. We all have different degrees of int- intimacy. Nobody can be intimate with everybody at the same level. I don't think it's wise to try to be intimate with everybody at the same level because not everybody is necessarily trustworthy in that sense. But we have, so we have different degrees of friendship and closeness with different people. But in terms of accepting someone as someone else in the body of Christ, then uh, they are not to be excluded on the basis of certain sins or certain certain other behaviors. If Christ has accepted them, they are acceptable. Now, some of you this may apply to, some of you may not, but I've observed some people who come from uh, rather large families, whether they're families of four, five, or six siblings, and they have parents, and they have aunts and uncles, and there's a lot of people there. Well, even among a family that is in relatively good harmony, there is not the same degree of intimacy between siblings. I know some families where one or two of the siblings may be incredibly close, and they're not quite so close to maybe one or two of the other siblings. 
but they all have a family devotion and loyalty to one another. That's sort of the pattern that we see in the body of Christ, although there, I always... I'm a little bit hesitant to use as analogies good uh, patterns of, uh, of human families because the family is such a wreck in the United States that there are a lot of people who've never really experienced a healthy family with two parents and, and siblings and anything close to stability. They, they're born into a family with no father or no mother or they're irresponsible, and the fallenness of this world has impacted their ability to understand these family analogies that we have in Scripture. But nevertheless, Scripture uses these kind of analogies. So we're to accept one another into this permanent fellowship. Now, we know that prior to salvation, none of us were very lovely. We were all rather obnoxious. We go back just a few chapters in Romans, and we're described as ungodly, we're described as still sinners in Romans 5, 6 and 5, 8. We're described as enemies in 5, 10. Christ died for us. He didn't die for you because you were such a wonderful person. You were so bright and so brilliant, had such good ideas or were so successful. He didn't die for you because he knew you would end up being a really good Christian. He died for you as a, as an obnoxious sinner in violation of God's, uh, God's righteousness. And so this reminds us that when we're dealing with other people, we have to deal with them in grace. Grace is the foundation for love. If you don't understand grace, you can't love somebody. And I'm committed to that. And when I see this, sometimes I'm, I'm somewhat surprised with some, in some marriages that they manage to survive because neither person understands a thing about grace. But then they don't understand a whole lot about other things, too, and they don't know how to communicate with each other, and somehow they just have some little partnership that manages to work for them. But it has nothing to do with the kind of marriage that Scripture talks about, where there's a level of intimacy and fellowship that that goes beyond just traveling down the same road together in the same general direction. Sadly, a lot of marriages are like two people in separate cars who are speeding down I-10 parallel to each other, headed for San Antonio, but there's not a lot of interaction between the two because they're just in two separate vehicles. They're isolated from each other. And what Scripture portrays is two people who are going to to some destination together. They're both in the same car. They're both in the same vehicle. So we are to uh, be working together, and that's the application of fellowship toward one another. And the pattern is, is Christ. Now, this concept of grace toward one another is something that has played a very large role in this last part of Romans. And we, we've all studied the many, many passages in the New Testament that talk about our responsibility, responsibilities to one another. We're to teach one another. We're to admonish one another. We're to serve one another. All of these are part of what it means to be in the body of Christ. But just look at these verses where we have this this doctrine of one another evident in the immediate context of Romans 12 through 15. In Romans 12, 5, at the very beginning of this section, Paul says, So we being many are one body in Christ. And I've pointed this out several times. This is somewhat difficult for a lot of American Christians to understand 
because we have such an emphasis on individualism, rugged individualism. Everybody does their their own thing as opposed to being part of a team. Now, if you've got a background in, in team sports or you were in the military in, in an environment where you worked on a team, then you'll have a better perception of these things. We are, the Scripture says, members of one another. We're not just living our spiritual life in isolation and autonomy. While we recognize the importance of pri- recognizing other people's privacy in relationships, you can push privacy to the point where there's no one another. But the Bible really emphasizes that we are to be a part of one another's lives. That's our ontological spiritual reality. There's a good word for you. This is who we are in Christ. We're members. We're codependent, and we have this uh, interdependency within the body of Christ. We are members of one another. So for this, because of that, because that's the foundation, Romans 12.10, Paul says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. There's, there's a level of, this isn't just loving one another in a sense of, of um, I don't really know you very well, I don't know you personally, but I'm just going to be kind to you and polite to you and as gracious to you as I possibly can, even though I don't really know you, in the sense of what we've been t- talked about in terms of impersonal love. This is talking about uh, more of a personal dimension to that love for one another and in honor giving preference to one another, honoring one another. And the foundation for that in Scripture is always the fact that whoever we are with as a human being is worthy of honor and respect, not because of who they are or what they do, but because they are created in the image and likeness of God. And that's the foundation for the whole doctrine of the value of human life. It doesn't matter how despicable, obnoxious, filthy, dirty. It doesn't matter how ignorant, wrongheaded, or clouded by religious religious activism or religious uh, wrongheaded religious activity a person is. We are to honor their life because they are created in the image and likeness of God. It doesn't matter how, what the kind of a religious extremist they are. If they're a member of ISIS, if they're attacking the United States, we need to kill them as quickly and efficiently as possible to the glory of God and out of love. That's how you deal with loving your enemy in some contexts. But in other contexts where there's not a combat situation, we need to deal with people like that out of love and respect because that is how the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really interesting as we go through Matthew on Sunday mornings to watch how the Lord deals with the Pharisees because they're an obnoxious, wrong-headed group. And Jesus deals with them very sternly but very politely and very firmly. He doesn't back down. He doesn't... uh, uh, let them set the agenda. He's very firm, but he doesn't lose control. He's not. Uh, he, he's not impatient with them. He's not insulting to them personally. He identifies them as brood of vipers, which is an idiom for the spawn of serpents, and that takes it right back to the garden. So he's honest, but he's not being personally. Uh, insulting or personally hostile in that sense. He's being accurate 
and describing the truth. So it's done, speak, that's otherwise described as speaking the truth in love, but it's got to be done without uh, a self-absorbed basis, which is hard for the rest of us. Jesus did it. He didn't have a sin nature. I have trouble with that because my sin nature just gets in the way. So Romans 12, 16, we're to be of the same mind toward one another. And that means we're to exercise humility, grace, orientation towards one another. We'll come back to that emphasis of the same mind toward one another uh, when we get into Ephesians. Romans 13, 8, owe no one anything except to love one another. We looked at that idiom for owing no one anything, and we saw that, that doesn't, that's not a financial term. It's not talking about financial debt. Sin in rabbinical thought was a debt against God. And so that's basically saying don't sin against each other, just love one another. That's the focal point. For he who loves has fulfilled the law. So we come to uh, our passage in uh, Romans fifteen seven, where Paul says, Therefore receive one another just as Christ received us. Now this should real as we think about having the same mind toward one another and loving one another, this really takes us back to the previous two verses, which I covered fairly briefly when we completed the last section. This is a benedictory st- statement, a benediction at the end of the section from 14.1 through 15.5, where Paul is pronouncing a, a blessing. Now may the God of patience and comfort emphasizing both of those because when you're dealing with somebody who is an immature believer, just as when you're dealing with an immature child who is uh, out of line, you need patience and the ability to encourage them. That's the word comfort there, more the way the concept of encouragement. May the God of patience and encouragement grant you to be like-minded toward one another. That's part of what it means to uh, to be a believer. That doesn't mean that we're going to agree on these debatable areas, but we're going to agree to, to disagree and not make issues out of non-essentials and focus just on the essentials that are part of Scripture. It's hard enough to be obedient to what God has specifically told us to do and not to do without introducing a lot of secondary issues into those commands that aren't really part of Scripture. So we're to, Paul says, May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. This is the real basis of unity. Unity is grounded in our relationship to God. There's a lot of talk about unity in the in Christianity that is completely fraudulent. People look out and they say, well, there's so many denominations. Well, there's a reason that there's a lot of denominations. It's not necessarily a good reason. In some cases it is. But the reason that you have a lot of denominations in Christianity is because of people who are self-absorbed and who have let their arrogance dominate either their thinking in terms of doctrinal things or the way in which they've handled their authority in a local church. And for roughly 1,500 years, a little less, 14-something, there was only one denomination, basically. And there were all kinds of problems within that denomination. And there were 
groups and subgroups and all kinds of sects in Roman, what became known as Roman Catholicism and a lot of division. In fact, you can break down within Roman Catholicism during the period from roughly 600 to 1500 and you can identify uh, almost as many different subsets of Roman Catholics as you later developed among Protestants. It's just that they didn't all separate out into autonomous groups, and that had to do with how uh, the church was united with the state. And once you separated out, it was viewed by political leaders as an act of treason as well as a religious act. And when uh, Martin Luther led the Protestant uh, Revolution, Reformation, in 1517, it was at a time when political leaders were flexing their muscles and breaking out from the uh, domination by the Roman Catholic Church. And so it was the right time for these kinds of splits to take place. In fact, when, when Luther started, when he nailed his 95 theses onto the door of the Church of Wittenberg, he was not intending to leave the Roman Catholic Church. He, his intent was to reform the Roman Catholic Church, and he wanted to have a debate about it, but the powers that be said, no, we don't want to talk about it. We're going to do things the way we want to because they were so corrupted already. That was one of the most corrupt periods of the Roman Catholic Church, and we're just not going to pay attention to the, the authority of Scripture. And so they were forced to separate. You had the original separation of Lutherans, and then, and that was pretty much confined to uh, Germany and to areas in Scandinavia where uh, Lutheran missionaries went. And then you had the development of of Calvinists, the followers of John Calvin, in French-speaking Switzerland and in in France. And they also had a heavy influence among a, a, a lot of British clergy in what became known as the Anglican Church. Then later on, you had the development of the uh, of the Anabaptist movement, a movement that means uh, to be baptized again. Everyone was being baptized as an infant. That was part of their uh, sort of their uh, introduction into uh, citizenship as well as into the church. And so everybody was baptized as an infant. But the Anabaptists came along and said, well, that has no spiritual value because baptism is supposed to be a statement about your personal faith in Christ as Savior. So you're not supposed to be baptized until later. So you had these are your basic groups that split out. But because you still had this orientation and uniting of church and state in Germany and in France and in these and in England where even today the the king or the queen of England is the head of the Anglican church so you still had this unity of of uh, church and state you had all each of these was a state religion so you had german Luther, lutheranism and swedish lutheranism and you had uh dutch reformed and you had french reformed and you had scottish reformed and all these different things then they came over to the united states and the united states after after especially after the american war for independence and and there's no government identification there's no state identification with each denomination they splintered all kinds of different ways because of, you know, this person looked cross-eyed, that person didn't read his Bible the same way, 
another person did, and they fragmented into different groups. So you had, uh, but you still, up until the American War for Independence, you still had your major denominations. You, you had your one Presbyterian church. You had some Cumberland Presbyterians and a few others. You had basically your your uh, main Baptist denomination. You had a couple of smaller ones. You had um, and these subgroups, the Free Will Baptists and a few others. Uh, you had a, a the development of the Methodist Church that was a break off from the Anglican Church starting in the late 1700s. You had all these different groups, but then they split again at the time of the Civil War. You had Northern Baptists and Southern Baptists. You had Northern Presbyterian and Southern Presbyterian, and you had Northern uh, Church of Christ and Southern Church of Christ, and all these different. So everything just multiplies more and more and more. And then with the introduction of 19th century liberalism, your northern denominations tended to go liberal and reject the authority of Scripture faster than your southern groups. And that led into what became known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy. And in the this really hit the north hardest at first. And these denominations began to fragment at different times and in different ways, but they fragmented over doctrine. And you would have a certain number of Christians, for example, in the uh, Northern Baptist denomination. You had, as they officially went, went liberal, you had conservative groups who would become sort of fed up with where they were going at different times. And one group would leave in one decade, and another group of conservatives would leave uh, 10 years later, and another group of conservatives would leave uh, 10 years later. And that gave rise to various smaller denominations such as regular Baptists and conservative Baptists and these kinds of things. And that was all, that was important. But what happened was the the Bible-believing conservatives and fundamentalists were the ones that always lost. They lost property. They lost church buildings. They lost seminaries. They lost Bible colleges. They lost missionary organizations. They had to start all over again in the early 20th century. And out of that came the development of a lot of what became known as conservative fundamentalist seminaries. And the reason they were called fundamentalists is because they believed in the fundamentals of the faith, which meant that they believed in the infallibility and inerrancy of Scripture. They believed in the substitutionary atonement of Christ. They believed in miracles and the physical bodily uh, resurrection of Christ. And all of these these doctrines were very, very important. They were published in a book called The Fundamentals of the Faith. So if you believed in those things, the literal second coming of Christ, then you were a fundamentalist. It's not something that's militant. It's something that believes in the basics of what the Bible teaches. And what happened was they had to start all over again. So you had seminaries like Dallas Seminary. You had Bible colleges like Moody Bible Institute, which started in the late 19th century but was basically a product of this. Uh, Los Angeles Baptist College, Biola, the Bible Institute of Los Angeles, all these different schools, uh, Wheaton, all these were a product of the, the this new group of fundamentalists slash evangelicals. And then starting about the 1970s, 
everything sooner or later starts to deteriorate because of the corruption of sin. And you started having bad doctrine infiltrate into those different uh, different organizations. And for the last 30 or 40 years, some of those stalwart schools no longer believe unequivocally in a literal historical Genesis 1 to 11. In fact, there's uh, only one faculty member that I know of on the Dallas Seminary Old Testament Department that believes in a literal historical Genesis 1 or in a young earth. It was when I... It was not that way when I was a student there 40 40 years ago. Genesis 1 through 11 implies a young earth. Uh, The the Bible implies a model of the spiritual life that enables a believer to face and handle all problems in life. But now, since the 50s or 60s, you've had the intrusion of Christian psychology. It's not just enough to know the Bible as a pastor to help people. You have to have subsequent training in counseling, in psychology, so you can really, really help people. And so you not only had the intrusion of human viewpoint science into the uh, creation evolution issue, you have the intrusion of sociology and psychology into uh, the spiritual life and in how, how do churches run? How do you plant churches? How do you develop churches? And church growth literature is loaded, just loaded with, with uh, uh, sociological, uh, uh, human viewpoint sociological influence. You also have in language, just in language study, you, you go to seminary, you study Hebrew, you study Greek, your professor's gone off and he studied li- uh, linguistics at some place and he comes back and he's got picked up a few ideas here or there that really aren't kosher. He's young, he really hasn't had time to think through a lot of things yet and he's, and, and most linguistic studies today are heavily loaded with presuppositions from, uh, from postmodernism that language and meaning is fluid. You see this when you hear people talk about that the Constitution is a living document. They believe in a postmodern view of language. It always changes. It's always moving. It doesn't mean the same thing all the time. So what happened in the fundamentalist modernist controversy is you lost everything in the early 20th century. The fundamentalists and evangelicals were rebuilding it in the middle of the 20th century, and then they're starting to lose it again. And a lot of people don't realize that we're in a second stage of the fundamentalist modernist controversy, and most evangelical Christians are either ignorant of it or they don't care. And that's really sad because every institution just about that was founded in the 20s, early part of the 20th century on a solid biblical basis is no longer there. They have all compromised. Some have had some good battles, and they've recovered. Uh, Paige Patterson, who's the president of Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, previously he was at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, did a great job at reversing those those seminaries. But in the context of this, this these these major denominations won and fundamentalists lost. Well, in those liberal denominations, they had compromised so much of faith that they they slipped into what is now modern ecumenicalism. Now, modern ecumenicalism is the the uh, contrast to biblical unity. Modern ecumenicalism says, let's all get along together, and if we have beliefs where we disagree, let's just get rid of them. 
because what matters is that we all have the same experience and we all love each other and we can go out and we can change society. And that's what, what's wrong with the modern ecumenicalism. It began in the early part of the 20th century and it's a counterfeit unity. It gave rise to organizations such as the World Council of Churches and many other organizations like that. And many of them are dominated by socialism and other forms of Marxism. And they're also dominated by incipient or overt forms of anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. They've rejected biblical truth, and that's really the unity factor. See, when we talk about what we've been studying here in Romans 15, the reason I went through that, what appeared to be a digression, is we have to understand what it really means to be like-minded. There are a lot of Christians out there who want to be like-minded, and they're out there in the United Methodists and the United Presbyterians and the United Church of Christ are all hugging each other. They've all gone ecumenical in the bad sense of the word. But what about the rest of us who are still trying to be biblical? We understand that the basis for unity is the Scripture. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 gives us that foundation. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, that's because he was in prison in Rome at the time, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness and long-suffering, three virtues of the Christian life. These are repeated either in pairs or all three together in other passages. Lowliness and gentleness are the top two words at the bottom. Tapaina for sune. Sune indicates a quality or character quality there, and it's talking about humility. Humility was not valued by the Greeks at all. It was not a virtue to be humble. Uh, so they, they didn't like it. But Paul says with humility and gentleness, this is a word, prautes, which is a, uh, a synonym of tapanaphrasune, and indicates meekness in a biblical sense of meekness, somebody who is strong and oriented to authority, uh, not gentle. This isn't some, somebody who's, who can just be rolled over, taken advantage of, but somebody who is strong. Moses was the meekest man in the Old Testament. Now, Moses was taking uh, three million rebellious Jews through 40 years in the desert. He was not a pushover. He was very strong. What it means, the Bible means by meek is to be oriented to authority, and he was oriented to the authority of God. And long-suffering means patience to be, to endure in difficult circumstances. So this is how we're able to bear one another with love is because that's grounded in basically these virtues of grace orientation, uh, humility, meekness, and long-suffering. And that then means that we endeavor to keep the unity of the peace. The word for endeavor is the same word that's translated study to show yourself approved under God. It doesn't really mean study, except it kind of does in that context. It means to to work hard at something, to labor intensively over a particular kind of activity. The context of of, um, of Hebrews uh, or Timothy rather is to uh, the idea of study, the idea of of reading and, and getting into the Word. So that's the idea there of why it's translated study to show yourself approved under God. In Hebrews, it has that idea of working hard or endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit. 
It's not a unit, it's not a sociological unity. It's not a unity because we all call ourselves Christians because we're not Muslim and we're not Jewish and we're not atheists and we're not pagans, so we're Christians and we can just have a, have an experience of warmth together and hug one another and love one another and say, oh, wasn't it good to have been together again tonight? Let's, let's do this next week, but let's not study the Bible. That, that just going to divide us. So, uh, the, the, the unity in Ephesians is a unity of the Spirit that, as we'll see, is based on faith. Colossians talk, 3.12 talks about these same three virtues. As the elect of God, that is, as believers, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, that's compassion, kindness, gentle humility, meekness, and long-suffering. They're those three virtues against the foundation for the Christian life. Now back to Ephesians 4. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, Paul talks about this unity. There's one body. There's one spirit. But just because there's one body and one spirit doesn't mean we ignore differences. There are some differences that we have to pay attention to, and those are doctrinal differences. We have to divide over doctrinal issues. But you have to be careful. You don't divide over petty things. You don't divide over things that are doubtful things. You don't divide over whether or not you play a piano uh, or whether you play some other instrument. You don't divide over the color. And I'm, I'm not being facetious here. There are churches who divide over these things. What color you paint the church, or what kind of steeple you have, what kind of whether you have pews or whether you have chairs. You, you don't divide over over a lot of things that churches divide over. That's just arrogance that causes those divisions. Our unity is based on one Lord, Jesus Christ. We have to have a proper Christology. One faith, that refers to not just believing, but it is a body of doctrine. It's what is believed. There is one body of doctrine. It's the infallible, inerrant Word of God. One baptism, that's the baptism by God the Holy Spirit. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the basis for real Christian unity. Now, what happened coming out of the 20th century, early 20th century, with the rise of ecumenism is that all of these fundamentalist evangelical churches that were spawned during that time, that, that properly left, they would sit around one day and look around the congregation and say, the pastor doesn't believe in the uh, physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm out of here. Or in some cases... The past, they, the church got a new pastor. For example, there was a, uh, there was a Methodist church down in old Houston Heights, and they got a new Methodist pastor in about 1932. And he was a classic 19th century Protestant liberal. He didn't believe in the infallibility or inerrancy of Scripture. He didn't believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. He didn't believe in the substitutionary atonement. And there was a man who taught a Sunday school class there of young couples that was quite large. His Sunday school class was quite popular. And this pastor called him in and said, you can't teach Sunday school anymore because you're a fundamentalist. You believe in the Bible and I don't. You're out of here. And this man said, okay, but I'm taking my Sunday school class with me. And they left that church, and they started a new church, and he decided to name it after the church he had come from, which was a church, I believe it was in the Pittsburgh area, that was called Baraka Church. And that's how Baraka Church got started. And their first pastor was a red, young, red-headed guy who played football at Wheaton College named 
Elwood Evans, and he was known as Red Evans, and he married John Walverd's wife's sister. And he and Walverd had gone through Dallas Seminary together. And he was a pastor of that church for about five years. But that was really a pattern for how a lot of church Bible churches got started in the early 20th century, is they had been part of a liberal church and they, they left. Well, what happened was these people got their feelings hurt. And I mean that in a, in mostly in a good way. Because when you have been maltreated by what you had been devoted to, the church you had been devoted to for many years, and you were abused and kicked out, you're going to be a little protective at that point. And so a lot of these independent churches threw the baby out with the bathwater and became too independent. The problem with independent churches is they're too independent. They said the problem is denominations. The problem wasn't denominations. The problem was false doctrine. And so they left, and they developed this anti-denominational framework, and they all splintered into their little atomistic groups. And and they went along for a lot of ways, and they lost a lot of clout. They lost their property. They lost their buildings. They lost their seminaries. And some of them would get together in loose associations, not denominations, and they recognized that, you know, we only have about $4,000 to give to missions, and you have 4000 and we get two other churches that each can give 4000 We can We can actually support one missionary together on the mission field. So if we cooperate, because we all basically believe the same things, and you had churches like Baraka and Minitex, which is Fellowship Bible Church of Pearland now, I think, and Almeida Bible Church, which used to be something else, and now it's not even called Almeda Bible Church anymore, and Spring Branch Community Church, which is now Bridge, some, what is it? Bridge Point, out on I-10. They've most, most of these have changed names. Spring Branch, Minitex, and Almeda were all started during the era of World War One, But they would get together, and those churches supported Dallas Seminary. They supported some of the same missionaries. And so when those missionaries came back to Houston, they could minister in the same three or four or five churches because that's where they got 90% of their missionary support. They understood the value of a, of working together in a, in a cooperative way. They didn't sacrifice in any way their independence. And that's a value among believers. There are a lot of churches. We do something like that with Camparete. We cooperate. There are people from uh, eight or nine different doctrinal churches that all work together to put on this camp every summer for a bunch of teenagers. We have five or six different uh, doctrinal churches, and for the most part, the pastors all work together, talk together. Uh, they're involved in Chafer Seminary and in the Chafer, Chafer Conference, and so they work with that. The problem that you run into is you still have people who think that anything where one pastor talks to another pastor is ecumenicalism, and that's what's called shooting yourself in the foot because we have to work together. The unity of Christ doesn't sacrifice doctrine. But if you're not sacrificing doctrine, if you're not sacrificing the integrity of the local church, then churches should work together and cooperate together because we're stronger together than we are separately and independently. We have to understand, you know, pastors are some of the most ego-sensitive people I've ever known. And it's real easy for pastors to succumb to competitiveness 
And there's some pastors who are so competitive, they won't have anything to do with any other churches or any other pastors because they're afraid that, that somehow uh, they won't be thought of very highly. But we're not in competition. We're all serving the Lord. We're all trying to do our best, and we should be cooperating with one another and not fighting and dividing over things. The, the churches are not supposed to be built on isolationism, but we should all be mutually supportive. And this is what these scriptures are talking about in terms of being like-minded, having a focus on on the Word of God. So unity is is fundamental, but it's a unity on the basis of doctrine, not at the expense of doctrine. Now that ties us back to verses 5 and 6, emphasizes the fact that we're to receive one another, and then we get into the next section next time where Paul relates what Jesus Christ did to Jew and Gentile. That helps us understand that in this context, when he says receive one another, it, he's, he's saying that there should be this unity between Jew and Gentile, despite the fact they have different traditions and different cultural backgrounds. They should be united as believers in, in Rome. So we'll come back and begin at verse 8 next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to uh, focus on these things this evening to be reminded of the importance of unity in the body of Christ, that we're not in competition with other like-minded churches, where pastors are not in competition with one another, but together we can accomplish more than we can individually or separately as long as doctrine is not compromised, that we are to be open and accepting of one, another's in ter- one another in terms of fellowship, because that fellowship is predicated on the fellowship that we have with you that's based on who you are, what Christ did on the cross, and not based on who we are. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today. In Christ's name, amen.